and sometimes why. Why? You're listening to And Sometimes Why, twice-monthly, long-form conversation podcast hosted by singer-songwriter, producer, and pseudo-intellectual Rob Zabo. Hey, folks. Welcome. Welcome to And Sometimes Why. I'm Rob, your host. This week's guest is Mike Miller, a.k.a. Endless Mike. For those of you who know my song, The Johnstown Kids, yep. That's him, that Endless Mike. We get into it. He fronts Endless Mike and the Beagle Club, and his music has had a huge impact on me and my musical life. I wanted to publish this episode today, on this day, January 20th, 2021, because it's the day of the U.S. inauguration. And I don't usually pay that much attention to U.S. politics, but I think we can all agree that this last little while has been different. Things were going down a pretty dark path, and uh, it warrants some attention. Mike has been writing about political, quote-unquote, political issues since the early 2000s. He's been doing it a long time, and I see his art in a way as activism. He doesn't see himself that way as we talk about, but his writing definitely rides the line between personal experience and wider social criticism. One of the recent singles is In Defense of a Universal Basic Income. That's the name of the song. So you get the picture. I mean, what do you call that? Not all of the songs are overtly political, but even the ones that are usually ride that beautiful line between the personal and the universal. And I absolutely love this writing and his approach. And I was exposed to it at an age where it really made an impact on me. It changed my life. We talk about this and we get into it in the conversation, but I really see what he does as real art. I mean, I contrast it to what I do as art, and I'm not just trying to <laughs> looking for support or affirmation on this. I mean, you know, I write about my feelings or whatever, but his art really deals with real, actual, concrete struggles, and there doesn't seem to be any thought of any commercial end purpose. We talk about it in our conversation. You'll see what I mean. So let me give you all a little bit of backstory as to how we met. I used to travel around as a solo singer-songwriter. I'd drive around in my van across Canada, around the Northeast U.S., and I would often do open stages in the Northeast U.S. because I didn't really have any fan base there. And the bottom line was that was really the only way I was going to get to play in front of a crowd. And a lot of these open stages were great. They were really well attended, and it was happening. So I would play the open stage. Often people would like my music. I'd make friends. I'd crash at their place. If I didn't meet anybody or if no one was, uh, you know, offering, I'd just sleep in my van. So here I was in Connecticut. I was in, I forget the city exactly. It was a performance space. It was like an art space. It was called The Space in Connecticut. I forget, what's the town again? Anyway, doesn't matter. It was a super cool artsy space, completely covered in the weirdest knickknacks and memorabilia from all over the place. And I saw Endless Mike and the Beagle Club. They were doing the same thing. They're from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and here they were in Connecticut. I think there were eight to 12 of them. I forget exactly how many people were there. And they were playing this open stage as a full band. And there was more of them than fit onto the stage. And it was like there was no separation between the stage and the audience and the band. And you didn't know who from the band was in the audience. And the audience was the band. It was all just one celebration. It completely blew my mind. And then Mike invited me down to play in Johnstown their hometown, and there was this great scene there and this community. It was all young kids, like late teens, early 20s. And my buddy Cal was with me, and he filmed it for a DVD that went with one of my records. Uh, what the hell was it? Oh, <laughs> like a metaphor. And uh, we slept in their band house, and we saw the whole deal, how they lived. And it, it was just so inspiring. And they came up to the boathouse in Kitchener and did their thing, a total clinic on communal art, worship, whatever you want to call it, real music. Yeah, I could just go on and on. It, it really hit me at the time, and it still does. You can hear me getting worked up thinking about how I felt, and it still makes me feel that way. So Endless Mike in the Beagle Club. 
I want to read a little bit from one of Mike's songs. So he was the songwriter and the band, like we talk about in the conversation, swelled from, you know, sometimes it was six, seven people. Sometimes it was 12, 15. It all depended. It was fluid. So here's a quote from one of their latest singles, the one I just name-checked earlier in this long intro, in defense of a universal basic income. Here's the lyrics. Everyone who's never had to scavenge to survive won an undeserved lottery before they even arrived. So we made up the myth of bootstraps so we wouldn't have to deal with centuries of social science data gathered in the field. We know every rapist, racist frat boy chanting USA had a lot of help to turn into the pigs they are today. Still, we find the spinelessness to find the worst thing we could say. Human nature is too complex to ever change. We have the answers. We know the problems. We know exactly what we must change if we want to solve them. Either no one really cares or we're too sold out to millionaires. Either way, we should be ashamed to let it end there. What do all those founding values say about equality? What good is a safety net without accountability? Still, we find the spinelessness to try to say that this country is the home of the brave, the land of the free, sweet land of liberty. That's bullshit, but it doesn't have to be. Enjoying the podcast? Make sure to subscribe in the app you're using to get new episodes twice a month. Want to help spread the word? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. More reviews and ratings means the algorithm shows and sometimes why to more people. If you listen on Spotify, you can share directly to your Instagram and Facebook stories. It all helps get the word out. But the very best thing you can do is tell a friend. All right, let's dig into this conversation. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Mike Miller is the songwriter, singer, and leader of Endless Mike and the Beagle Club. He's a social worker and a husband and father of two boys. This is my conversation with one of my favorite songwriters who I'm lucky enough to call a friend, Mike Miller. It's not youthful naivete, so I'm a grateful bellyache. Living like I'm trying to forget. I know there is something commendable to being responsible and dependable. I just haven't figured it out for myself yet. So what's going on? Nothing. What's going on with you? It's only been 10 years. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> of all the weeks to talk to each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a really long time, and I feel like life is so different. I mean, the whole lockdown thing and shit is going so sideways in your country. What's <laughs> happening? How does it feel to be living amidst all that? I don't even know how to answer that, man. It's ridiculous. Every day is something else. Every day is, you know, something that it's going to be something else. Maybe it's turning a corner. Maybe it's just because of the new year. It's the new year. It feels like things could turn a corner. It's definitely because dude's going to be out on his ass in a couple of days, and that's good. Yeah. Or he's back onto his golden toilet. I just think about talking about this stuff all the time, and every time I look at the news, I think of you, and I think of your music, and I think you've been writing what is, in my mind, activist music for over a decade, right? Sure. You've been talking about all of these things, specifically addressing them head on. If there's <laughs> no, like, you know, reading between the lines, it's all right out there out in the open, right? And yeah. now you're dealing with this. How does that yeah. feel? It doesn't feel it doesn't feel good. I mean, there's that kind of goofy idea of that like, well, you know, it'll be good for punk rock. It will not be. It was not. It is not. It's like cuz it's not good for humanity. Like I said, it's just it's oh, it's overwhelming. It's exhausting. But you still got to get up. Well, yeah, yeah. And so you feel like personally on an emotional level, it wears you have, out. Really? I always have felt politics on a personal level. Always. Well, yeah, that's how you write about it, right? I, I listen to tons of podcasts now. I wasn't doing that that much when we first got to know each other. Mm -hmm. But you know the guy, Sam Harris? He's a neuroscientist and he's got a podcast. He comments a lot on politics. I was listening to it the other day and he was talking about, you know, Americans back in the day. Like when I grew up in the 80s, it was like they had a common enemy. It was Russia and that sort of bound Americans together. Whereas today, the enemy is each other. Like, sure. can you have a democracy when the enemy is your neighbor? No, it's that has been happening for a while. Like, it's been moving that way and just getting a snowball and just getting worse and worse to where it's obviously just came to a head. You know, on Wednesday, it was unreal. It was unbelievable. It was, and it, it's, it comes from this sense of because things are so pushed 
to one side or the other. And, right. and I'm in no way, shape, or form, you know, a moderate middle of the aisle kind of guy. It, yeah, no kidding. And just so but, people know, this won't be uh, released right away. When he talks about Wednesday, that's when the Trump goons stormed. Stormed the Capitol building, yeah. After uh, they went to a rally that he spoke at, and he just wound them up, turned them down the street. There's no denying that that's exactly how that went down. That is so crazy that, like, and it, it happens, I think, in no small part, because it's like a game, man. It's like, it's just cosplay. It's just, like, being wrapped so much in this, like, fake world. They're shocked. Shocked, I say, that they're getting arrested. You know what I mean? Like, they just the thought they think that they were playing a video game, right? They just thought that they were living a Twitter feed, man. That they were living out this fantasy of like this fake oppression, this fake discrimination, all the things that they're so disgusted by. When people who actually have their rights being violated stand up for those rights, that same crowd is the first one to put them down. That same crowd is the first one to call names and trash a whole entire movement and to stand stubborn in the face of compassion. You know what I mean? Like there's something cool about not caring about other people. And you just, they're just so wrapped up in this thing that they've literally crushed the doors to the Capitol building, like killed a cop. Like, yeah, killed inside. a guy. Killed yeah. a guy. This guy's dead. There's yeah, it's freaky. Like, and and, and yeah. watching the footage, it's like what you're describing is so true. It's like these entitled, it's all most, almost like 95% younger white dudes. Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> you go, you, you're so hard done by, I guess, right? Absolutely. absolutely. Living in, in the U.S. Uh, as a white male. Oh, yeah, right? Poor guys. Stop. <laughs> it's hard out here. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, since a lot of what we would talk about, you know, when we saw each other more often, or what I would think about when I think about you is, you're in the northern U.S., and we're only about six, seven hours away from each other. Yeah. You're in Pittsburgh, Johnstown area, and yeah. I'm in Toronto. Having seen it and experienced it even 10 years ago, there's such a big difference, but it's subtle. And so I guess what I want to ask you is, growing up surrounded by what we're talking about and seeing it sort of escalate over the last 15, 20 years— how does it feel to live side by side with with these people that you've just described? I mean, you, there, there must be people in your family who you go to dinners or, or people who are, you know, your neighbor. And you got to talk to them and, and exist side by side, whereas I think it's less obvious here. I mean, there's there's the more radical element, but Canada's just much more moderate and I think level-headed in a lot of ways. Yeah, well— uh, I'm not trying to say we're great or anything. I just mean we just don't have that radicalized— Just, just comparatively. Right. Just comparatively. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, we've got we've got problems. We've got all sorts of problems. I just sure. mean it's different. You know, the first time we went up and played in Kitchener with you. Right. Yeah, you played at the Boathouse. It was like 2005, house. I think. Before I came up, there was I did an interview with like the city paper for Kitchener. Must it must have been the record. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm sure you're right. He called and I talked to him and he uh, you know, was like, "What do you you think this stuff's going to translate?" I remember him that was one of his questions. He was like, a lot of your stuff's like political stuff, you know, rabble-rousing, you know, naming names. <laughs> he was like, do you think that's going to translate? And I don't know, man. You know, I, I, I guess it's the first time I started to think, maybe, I guess everywhere's not so. I guess we, we all get caught up in our little realities, right? I've thought about this a lot, actually, and I, I thought throughout our friendship about the people I grew up around in Kitchener and Toronto, the music scene was way more kind of careerist. It was very about being good and trying to make a career out of it. Yeah. And the, one of the things that blew my mind about you guys is you guys were like doing real art that didn't really have career aspirations the way I saw it. It was like real sure. activism. Sure. Whereas like maybe that speaks to why this guy was asking you, do you think it's going to translate? Because, you know, where we were, you know, we're singing about our feelings and everything, but there isn't direct a relation to politics in our day-to-day -day life that's going to affect, you know, whether you get a meal or whether, you know, something concrete. Do you think that maybe that's why he asked you that question? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think also what you said, too, that, you know, you said we're a lot more 
moderate, you know? Maybe it takes more to get fired up. And maybe if you don't have to live in it all the time, why would you... Because it's the biggest drag in the universe. Why would you <laughs> Why would you get into it if you're another country away? Good luck with all that, you clowns, you know? Like, <laughs> well, uh, that's that's us looking yeah, down at you guys. guys yeah, that's the Kitchener. That's the, the, the guy from the record to us, you know? Like, oh, good luck with all that. You yeah, know, totally. And then we went up there and we played. And um, I remember afterwards we were at the bar and the guy, there was a guy that we met at the show and he was just talking about stuff. And he brought that up too. Boy, you know, this was, these were the Bush years, you know? So he was like, boy, things are pretty, huh? yeah, I guess you don't like him too much, you know? Totally. And it was me and Davis talking to this guy. Davis. This was, is Matt Davis, a drummer in the Beagle Club. My dream friend, Matt Davis. We've coined a term for it because you couldn't dream of a better friend. We're dream friends. That warms my heart. Shouldn't it? it? Uh, yeah, so man. so Davis goes to this guy. He's like, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, and, and I think he was talking about the Iraq war. It might have been like the lead up to it. I don't even think we were like fully in it, you know. And Davis was like, I mean, they're just taking, you know, all these people that died at the World Trade Center. And they're just it's they're just sharpening it as a weapon to just cut their way into starting a war. Just matter of fact, just like, not, you know, the plainest day. That's how it is, you know. The guy that we were talking to, he was like, wow, now that is a really cynical point of view. Like to Davis. <laughs> this, like, this guy in, in, in Kitchener was saying this. Like that yeah, was Yeah, he like, was like, do Whoa. you really think that? Davis was like, I absolutely know that, you know? And he was just like, wow, that's really cynical. Well, yeah, <laughs> Davis was it, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, true, man. Yeah. yeah. Like I was saying earlier, I mean, on the surface, we might be really similar, but in, in other ways, when you start to dig into it, like, for instance, I listened to the podcast you did in 2016 with that guy, Jerry, who was running for office. Yeah. I forget. Yeah. And, and I remember hearing him talk. So this is just so people listening can get the idea. So you're interviewing this guy who's a Republican, but he's a musician. He was pitching things to you with a, this American audience in mind. You can hear the whole subtext of it is, absolutely. you know, yeah. Americans are listening to this because this is what that, I'm getting yeah. to the point here. He's talking about universal health care as though it's like shocking, you know, and yeah. Canadians are just like, what do you mean? Sure. That's just what you expect. People in Europe, all over the world. And, and you, you laugh that the U.S., the leader in so many other ways, somehow the powers that be worked it out that this is something to talk about. This is something to fight about. I, Why I mean, do you think that is? Like, how did I, I know you can't explain how it all got there, but I, I don't know. That wears me out. Fuck. Well, I, I think that when, you know, the uh, the common enemy of the Russians from the 80s that you were talking about at the opening of this, uh, that goes back even further to the common enemy of, of communism in the 60s. And it's just always been a really dirty word. Communism. People don't know that. Yeah. In America, yeah. in American politics. And they don't know the difference. But for most people, there's no political discourse, political philosophy in high schools. You know, you have to seek that stuff out. So most people don't know the difference between communism and socialism. Yeah, and exactly. So then when there's, a, you know, the thing with healthcare and stuff, I mean, they lose money that way, or it costs money. And it's always the Republican conservative side that does not want that to happen. I mean, the left Democrats don't either, but they pick different projects. Yeah, the, yeah. Healthcare one, the, the, the healthcare one is definitely a Republican thing. That, and so the, all they have to do is say it's socialism, and then people don't want it. You know? And they don't want it, and they don't know why. Because I mean, if it's not as if why. go to uh, Scandinavia, consistently rated, you know, Denmark, Sweden, right. uh, as the happiest people in the world, and they're socialist right. countries, and they have you know cradled the grave social security net. It seems to be the thing that works out of all the human experiments. It's not uh, as if they're on Mars or something. The, the info's out there, right? If we're gonna have this government and and this power and wealth and blah blah blah, if we're gonna have all this stuff. Why wouldn't you do it to make things? Think how much fun we could have. <laughs> I <laughs> love the way you're looking at it. And that's not even close to being on the agenda. You know, it, it's the worst. And so, but, how did you learn about it? I don't know. Probably, you know, punk rock. I I read uh, Michael Azarad's "Come as You Are: The Story of Nirvana," mm -hmm. biography of Nirvana. A lot of the a lot of the ideas in there had me thinking. Oh, there's more to this than like loud guitars. And you know, the reason I feel like a weirdo is is perfectly encapsulated in this music. And there's a reason why I don't feel like such a weirdo when I'm listening to this kind of music, you know? The whole underground kind of scene, the whole punk scene, you know, and they just start reading books, man. People, that's the answer to most things. Read a book. Read <laughs> you know, book. any book that can just like open up 
your experience to something, something beyond saying, well, I have healthcare through my job, so I don't care if the next guy doesn't go get a job too. Like what's wrong with you, man? You know, that it only comes that far. You can't see any further than your own nose. Read a book. <laughs> and, and the whole idea too, is that if you help people who need help, it's going to be better for you too. You know, do you, do you really want to hire your own personal security guard and put up razor wire around your house so that you can sleep at night because everyone around you is starving? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, they don't have to. That's what the cops are for. They just to protect property and to protect people, rich people and people who are well off. They're certainly not for the people that need help, right? Yeah, yeah. So do you think of your music as as activism? I mean, I think that there's something to it. Maybe if it was like somebody else could feel like, I don't feel like a weirdo when I hear this maybe on that personal kind of like level that maybe it yeah. makes somebody want to, you know, look a little further or whatever, or maybe look a little closer inward, I suppose is a better way to say it. But no, I don't really think it's activism music. I mean, I don't think it makes a difference to the kind of stuff that we're talking about. It just makes me feel like I'm speaking for myself instead of being spoken for. Right. I'm smiling now because I'm thinking the, the titles of, of, like we are still at war, two thousand and eight, right? Sure. Uh, in defense of a universal basic income. Sure. <laughs> it's like the reason I'm laughing is because I'm thinking back to the careerist thing that I was talking about. <laughs> as, as it relates to this stuff, is not going to be a radio hit. It's not going to be a snappy TikTok video. It's mm. like it's real shit. Well, you know, and both of those things, the universal income one, anyway. The first line in that is about like my kids, about yeah. me thinking about what kind of world we're going to leave our kids. What am I teaching my own kids? You know, so it's, it's a very personal perspective yeah. that's tied back into the president of the United States of America, the current. And I don't know when this is going to come out. So I'm talking about Trump. He is everything that I would never want my boys to be. He is everything I hate about people wrapped into one person. And you would never want your kids to be that. You would never, ever want your kids to grow up thinking that a guy like that's okay. I couldn't agree more. That, and, that, and, that and puts so, it all together for me. And yeah. so how, how do you, me and Laura used to joke that Jack, Jack was born. So Laura's Obama your was, wife, just for yeah, people listening. Mm -hmm. yeah. Our oldest boy was born. He's 10 now. So wow. he, he was born when Barack Obama was still the president. We would marvel at like, wow, you know, he's only ever known a man of color to be the president. Yeah. Like they, Maybe things are opening up a little bit. The only time I ever voted for somebody in my life was when I voted for Obama the first time. Yeah. And every other time I voted against the other guy. It's always been, I've always voted for the Democrats, but I've always been voting. Like, I didn't pull a lever for Biden. You know what I mean? You pull it to get Trump out of there. Absolutely, Anything yeah. could be better. And I don't care what anybody would say about that. I don't care what any Bernie bros would say about that or anybody that, that's realistic. You know what I mean? That that's, was such a step that's forward. How it I mean, is. you only had like, oh, you know, like caring about politics and the way the way that I'm talking about it now. I don't think I would five years ago wanted to devote a whole conversation to be published about American politics because it didn't seem, you know, you guys were doing whatever you're doing and that's fine until now where it's like, no, this this is good. This guy's going to bring the world down. Dude, in, to his level. And I, I remember when Obama came in, I remember I was on tour and I was in Vancouver and I remember watching it on TV. And I remember that really, I mean, I wasn't the only one. It, I remember thinking, this is progress. This is, this hey, is going to make, yeah. And he was great when he came, like he was an amazing campaigner. And as far as a person, like you talk about the kind of person you'd like your kids to grow always, up to be as always, an example. That was right? always true. Even, the, you know, his second term, especially, and he just, I know that he was blocked by so much stuff, but he was also the, some of the stuff that he did was what everybody does, you know, but he's at least a good man. I think he was a good man. He seems like it. Right. And the yeah. first time around, man, he was such a good campaigner that, yeah, I voted for him. I voted it's for him. Inspiring cool. speaker. Yeah. I knew he was going to win. So I wanted to be a part of that. It makes my heart uh, kind of jump a little bit, even just thinking of like that happened and hearing you talk about and the feeling of your son having only ever known that and like, oh my God, yeah. that's hope. And now it's like, this is everything where you don't want to be is the president of the United States. You know? And he used yeah. to be in America. If you put your mind to it, you can be anything. You can be president someday. You know, they tell yeah. every poor kid that even though yeah. it's not true, it couldn't even be close to true. But now it's like, listen, man, if you grow up to be president, I will have really failed you as a father. <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk a little bit more about you being a father? Because when we met, you're in your early 20s. Um, I'm about 10 years older than you. 
as I was preparing for this, you know, I go bananas and I listen to all your stuff and read all the lyrics. And I'm like, oh, shit, Husky Tenor, there's so much about being in your 20s and not wanting to grow up to be those people that kind of gave up that kind of sense of idealism. And I remember how that felt in my 20s and, you know, you don't have kids yet. And how does it feel to you now doing the kind of music you're doing and playing the kind of gigs you're playing and writing and all of that? How has it changed now that you're a dad? Yeah, well, it was certainly around that time and those songs and stuff like that. That was like, it was the only thing that mattered to me. You know, it was the most important thing in the world to me, playing those songs with my friends, and living it, you know. But then other things come in that are more important. So I, I love being their dad and I love the life that we've built together. All, you know, me and Laura and, and these guys too. It's great. I don't feel like it's very compartmentalized or anything like that. I honestly don't feel like I've outgrown. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But like, <laughs> so that I, I think that's a good thing to keep that, to, I've to outgrown keep that those fire, songs. right? Yeah yeah. 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 I mean, it makes the things that are important to be more important. Like I was saying, you know, this is the world that they're going to have. And yeah. uh, I haven't stopped thinking about it. I don't sit them down to lecture them about, you know, <laughs> picture that <laughs> Marxist, Marxist, com, uh, Marx, <laughs> your 10 year old and your yeah, like, six year old or whatever and, and it is. Ex explain to them about Marxist concept of man or anything like that. But, <laughs> I mean, it's there if they're reading between the lines. I guess. That, well, that gives me hope. That inspires me. I, I'm looking at my notes here and I have, this is a question. Do you find it harder to be idealistic? Because I, I definitely find it trickier myself because as mm. I get older, you learn so much yeah. and everything gets so much more nuanced, which is good and bad, but it can kind of dull some of the passion in some ways, right? Sure. Yeah, I do find it harder to be idealistic. Just hearing you say what you've finished saying, in a lot of ways, it sounds like it, it isn't. I don't know. It's tricky, isn't it? It's really been crushing the last four years. There is undeniable proof that a large swath of the population here prefers to be ruled. That really makes us take stock of the idea that, you know, we could take care of each other or not taking care of each other. We're not even wearing masks around here when people are dying by the thousand. I have no sense of what it's like down there. So in you're in Pittsburgh now. You were mm -hmm. in Johnstown. So in yeah. Pittsburgh, what's the population of Pittsburgh? Like half a million, something like that? Mm-hmm. People are walking around mostly without masks? Not really. But I mean, there's just like this contingency of, how do I want to say this? Like, not everybody, but there's this almost like weird subculture that goes in with the same folks that are crashing the Capitol down and, and that the election was stolen and that whole crew that like, it's not as bad as people are saying. Yeah, there's it's, those people like, up it's here It's against too. my rights to be told that the, I can't go to a restaurant. <laughs> It's a weird uh -huh. thing. It makes me think of the need to teach critical thinking in school. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like, do you stop your car at stoplights? No, it, it, you know, you're giving up a little bit of your rights. But at the same time, you know, if everyone stops at stoplights, we don't have head on crashes at intersections. So we all agree we're going to do that. It makes sense. Exactly. And a lot of my idealism came from maybe not like anarchy as, a, as an inherent to anarchy as like a political theory, but certainly as a as a personal philosophy and, mm -hmm. and, and an ideal to strive towards, you know, that that would be if we could self-actualize, we wouldn't need those sorts of things, right? We wouldn't need to be told it's good to help others, you know, not that we are told that, but I mean, like, and that's so idealistic, it borders on naive in the face of the way people act now and the way that you know, they'll follow a strong man if he's loud enough and brash enough and racist enough and scares them enough. That part is very hard to be idealistic about. But we're talking about Obama and how you can swing from one end of the pendulum to the other, you know. It doesn't get much more extreme from one guy to the next, right? Well, maybe it's, maybe we'll get that, you know, Pamela, so. you know, yeah. woman. That would be inspiring and, yeah. and exciting. It sure would be. Can we talk a little bit more about music and the Johnstown scene? Sure. And uh, your band, Let's. The Beagle Club? And Let's. Mike and the... I find that music so inspiring. Your music, your writing, your lyrics, a lot. I've done it more than once. Like, I'm feeling not creative or whatever. I'll go and read your lyrics and it'll light a fire under my ass. And like, oh my God, this is so exciting. You know, so something exciting. like this call is coming from, or the call is coming from inside the house. Does that song stand out for you? 
it stands out. It was the first one we put together for that record. And it, so it stands out for me for that. And it stands out to me how awesome the, the Beagle Club is in it. That's what I think of when I think <laughs> That's of what that you song. think of. Absolutely, think- man. Like that intro, the way that all just kind of comes together, that noise that's kind of going there, that's Matt banging on like the handle part of a capo. Wow. And with a slide guitar, like with a slide on his finger. That's what that rhythm is. And then he's just fingering the chords. So that's what that weird kind of tone is. And I I just remember us putting that all together. It's Heidi playing the the piano. She kind of felt that out while in the studio. So when I think of that song, I think of how John plays the cello part there. And he Uh sort of does this motif that comes from the first album. Yeah, that's all them. And that's what I think of when I think of that song. Houses don't know that they're houses. Pets don't know. I think of those lyrics because I think that it's like a little perfect little puzzle and it's that song's not political really in my mind. Do you think you could write a song like that again? Lyrically? You mean that's not political or? No, I mean, I was listening to a podcast with uh, Rick Rubin talking about Tom Petty when he was doing Wildflowers. He talked to him before he died. It's something to the effect of Tom was saying, I don't know who that guy was who wrote that record. I was just in kind of a state where I was just banging stuff off. And, you know, I wrote 30 songs in two weeks, whatever it was. And he's like, I don't know who that guy was. I couldn't do that again if someone asked me to. And so I kind of think of you in your prime or something, you know, like, (laughs) could you get back there? Or maybe you don't think of it that way. Maybe you're still feeling ultra creative. I don't know. Yeah, I don't feel much different. That song in particular is a little too, like, clever or something. (laughs) Kind of goofy. I think I know what you mean. There's a theme there. You just come up with that one little, right? It's just one idea beat into the ground over and over. Self-critical, right. So if if you met someone, so... I still write like that. (laughs) (laughs) You you take whatever you can get, right? Yeah. If I was trying to explain the Beagle Club, I've always had a really hard time from the moment we met in Connecticut there to what you guys did at the boathouse to when I first went down to Johnstown and saw what you did in that community. Can you talk a little bit about what the band was and is? So you remember Sean Jackson? He played in like elementary thought process. He's keyboards. Yeah. He used to book shows too. So the Johnstown scene was just kids, man. There were no grownups at all. That's one of the things that blew my mind. Yeah. And it was just rented out fire halls and community buildings. We didn't play at bars. There was log no, cabins. Yeah, that's what we would do. We'd, and would rent one. They'd rent one until you know it got so trapped. Like a couple times in a row, somebody kicking holes in the wall or breaking the sink in the bathroom or whatever <laughs> would get kicked out, or they would up the price and say, "Now you have to, we'll pay more to rent the place." It's like yeah. 300, 400 kids would come to these shows. It was so awesome. Like every time, and so it was like, okay, all right, it's just money. The promoters never kept money. They never pocketed the money ever a penny of it and if you found out that they were they would never be you'd never go to one of their shows again they'd get dragged for it man because it was just like militantly ethics when it came to like that diy kind of like punk rock thing there weren't that many like straight down the middle punk rock bands like all the bands sounded a little different but there was like a feel and a sound that everybody kind of sounded like or at least the same kind of feeling and all the bands were like best friends and knew the words to the, all of each other's songs. Oh, yeah. I love that where everyone in the crowd singing every lyric. Yeah, yeah. To it, the song. It just, yeah. 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 And for, for me, I had come from already playing, you know, full time as a musician touring in Canada. And right. I was you were very inspiring with, when I, when, well, I, I wasn't thinking of that. You guys were inspiring me because I was like, what you just described, This, these were all kids in their early 20s putting on the shows, renting the venues, renting the PAs, putting the show together, met, like being at the door, selling yeah. the merch, in the bands, everything, as opposed to what I just come from was, you know, there were agents involved and there were managers and there were, you know, quote unquote, proper clubs with sure. owners. And it was very... I'm not going to say corporate, but way more adults. Right. It was not, there's nothing, it's, that's not corporate, you know, like, but in our minds, it was like, get out of here with that, you know? (laughs) So they would rent the fire halls and then the fire halls, like the fireman's club or whatever that owned the hall would say, you know what, I'm up in the price because you guys keep trashing this place. I would say, up it. 
fine. That's fine. Here huh. you go. You know, we need a place to play. And then they started saying, from now on, you got to hire a security guard. There's got to be a huh. cop here when you play. And we'd be like, done. See ya. And then uh, move to then I don't move remember to the anyone trashing hall. anything, though. Did no, that, that it wasn't happen. all the time. None of, the, none of the shows I ever went to. No, uh, it wasn't every show. It was stuff like, you know, <laughs> Bertuzzi put his guitar through the roof. Because he was trying to like spin it around his shoulder or something like that. <laughs> oh, do the yeah. hair metal thing. The yeah, toss. yeah, yeah. Because like, he thought it would be funny. And it was because he smashed his, the head of his guitar into the into the ceiling. You know, or it was like Justin Clinchard when the, the Last Hope was playing, like smashing out light bulbs because he was just like into it. It was just stuff like that, you know. Sure. Yeah, or, yeah. Kids, or kids would do that kind of stuff. But well, there was like, it was self-policed. It was like no drinking, no drugs here. If you do this, we're going to lose this space and we're never going to be able to have punk shows again. And that is the most important thing to everybody here. You know, so if we see you drinking out in the parking lot, you're done. Yeah, it wasn't was just a lot like, of partying that I ever saw. No, either. It was all right, about the music, Because everybody right? was underage, yeah. Plus the, the liquor, like uh, the drinking age in Canada is three years younger. Yeah, I mean, there'd be parties after the shows and stuff. Yeah, but like, sure. you'd never bring it there. I don't know. It was it was just really self-contained and and self-governed, and it was just really wonderful. And our band, to finally answer your question, <laughs> was born of that. Was born of that scene. So the scene existed the way you're describing it before the Beagle Club was put together. Sure, like you grew out of that. I didn't realize that. See, I wasn't there. Yeah, oh yeah, sure. Sean was putting a show together, and he said, "You want to?" I heard you've been playing because I was playing in a band with Matt. And Cody. Matt's your brother for people Matt's listening. My brother. Yeah. And um, he's in the Beagle Club too. And he's in the Homeless Gospel Choir now. And he does his own solo stuff. And he has a band called New Mutants, Volume 1, Issue You guys all do so much there. stuff. That's another thing. He's living always... in Harrisburg now. Oh, he is? Okay. Yeah. So he's got his band in Harrisburg. And, you know, so he's still living it. It was me and Matt, our friend Dallas Zimmerman played bass. And then Cody played the drums. Cody Wallet, who played I didn't bass realize in the that. Who was, who yeah. was the bass player, right? We had this band. It was like this loud, kind of like thrashy, I don't know, emo band or something. But I was also, I was starting to write. It felt like it was getting away from like just writing songs. Like I just wanted to write like songs, just like simple songs and chords and, and kind of focus on the words. Like I wanted to be a writer, you know, yeah. more than just like a singer or a, or a dude in a, in a band, a person in a band. I wanted to be a writer. So right. my focus was going that way, and it's like, so I just was playing these, you know, simple acoustic guitar songs that I was writing, and I was teaching myself how to play the piano, and and so Sean was like, I hear you've been writing, your, like, your, this, like, solo stuff, you know, because that's what I thought it was. I'm putting this show together, and I want you to play it. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll play it. That sounds cool, you know? Like, I'm uh, maybe people hear these songs. Maybe there's something. Maybe there's something to them. I want my friends to hear them. I want you guys to hear them. Yeah, let's go. And then the night before, or it was like the week before, maybe, I don't know. But he like finally put out the flyer for it. And it was like all acoustic solo guys oh. and, and women too, but like all uh, uh, acoustic, like solo stuff. And I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> That's whack. I don't want to be a part of that. that. Sounds like the most boring show in the world. Right. You know? So I was complaining sad about it. Sad songs, right? Yeah. I was complaining about it to a bunch of our buddies. We were all out pizza place or something we would get together every thursday it's all you could eat spaghetti <laughs> they didn't card you so we'd get pictures of beer and would eat spaghetti and then we'd go back to our friend joe messina's house and we'd do that every thursday so we're all together on that thursday and i'm complaining about it and i was like you know what let's just go back to joe's and we're gonna start a band tonight like you guys we're gonna play these songs i'm not gonna play solo i'm gonna have a band and they were like that's fine Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. So that's how we started. It was the guys that were around that table. Matt was not one of them. Cody wasn't one of them. Davis wasn't one of them. Like it was really? all so, so it con yeah. constantly changed. Yeah. So it would constantly change. And that's how it worked the first time. They were all in other bands and they all, like I said, it was born of that scene because they all were already musicians and songwriters. Right. Play. It could just pick up on, I'm playing one, four, five here in the key. Of totally. And so we would just do that and, and we just had fun and we didn't really how that was going and then it just sort of opened up to you know sam had been playing bass but he can't make it tonight so can i teach you these songs on the bass sure you know i need another drummer like it was just like yeah i'll play i'll play who cares you know then i'd say okay i'm i got a show anybody want to play it with me and that whole circle that had ballooned into being like 20 people would play here and there or whatever if 
12 of them said, yeah, then would be a 12 piece that night. See, that's what I walked into the first. Yeah. I don't know if the first time it was that many people, but the first yeah. time in Johnstown, it definitely was. I completely uh-huh. blew my mind because it was like there was more of you than could fit on the stage. I don't know if mm-hmm. there was 15 people or whatever. And it was like there's no separation between the stage and the band and the audience. And half the people, you know, the band couldn't all fit on the stage. So you didn't know whether someone who was standing beside the stage was just an audience member really into it and then of course they're probably playing something so you're like are they in the band or are they not it didn't they matter were. at a certain point it was just this big blur this big celebration like explosion right yeah and that was just like that's what that scene felt like and it didn't last you know and that no. feeling didn't that feeling didn't last even how long did it last that um, makes me sad to hear because it, it lasted when I was going down there for maybe two three years in a row sure it felt like maybe I just caught the heyday Oh, you definitely did. It's just people grow up, man, you know, and there just weren't kids, younger kids to come into it and people move away because honestly, when we're talking about to tie it all back to the beginning of this conversation, like being so myopic that your world doesn't extend beyond where you were, you had asked before, how does it feel to live with your neighbors and your family next door to be so like, you know, see you and your point of view, your ideology is like the enemy. And that's, Uh you know, I didn't really think of that. I knew 300 kids that wanted to throw down on a Friday, you know, on a Tuesday night in the fire hall, you know what I mean? And I didn't care to leave Johnstown because then we started touring. So it was like, well, this will be the great, this will be the perfect place to come home to cheap. I know everybody who cares, you know, want to go somewhere else. We'll go on tour. So we did that yeah. quite a bit. One of the first times I went down there, there was some kind of a benefit. Someone had gotten injured or sick or something, and it was the same thing. It was just kids who'd pooled together, and a lot of the proceeds from the gig was to help someone. It might have been Cody. It wasn't Cody, but they did that kind of stuff all the time. So to you, was that wasn't a special thing. So to me, that stuck in my mind. I mean, I wrote a song about it, for Christ's sake. Yeah. But I don't remember which one. I guess to you, you're like, well, I don't know what time it was because it happened all the time. I think that you're in your song, it was conflict because I thought about that. And I've actually thought about that song quite a bit, the Johnstown Kids. And I think that it's and that's what all good songs are, right? It's like it's just, it's like imagery. And then it's sort of like pulling from other things, but you make it into like a cohesive narrative. And and that's what you're supposed to do. And it certainly does in that song. It talks about that. he, You know, the kid could use uses medicine. The kid could use some medicine. Right. So that would have been about Corey. He quit elementary thought process because they were really picking up steam and touring a bunch. And he couldn't take that much time off of work. And they were like, just quit. Like, who cares? You don't even like your job. And he was like, well, I need the health insurance right. because, you know, he had for his insulin. Right. There you go. Okay. So I must have, I must so have, it you was know, that, heard a bunch of different stories. And then, yeah, it was that. And then, but the one that you played would have been like a bunch of the money. We would have paid you and then we would have kept the rest. The local bands, like I said, didn't get paid. They'd pay the venue, they would pay the touring band, and that was it. Split it that way. If it was 150 bucks to rent this hall, everything else went to the touring bands. And in that case, they probably kept it for whoever they were helping out. Talk you know, about I mean, they would do stuff. Was like, like one of the ethics. shows was called, one of the flyers said, Toothapalooza, because they were, they were raising money to help out Mike Dixon, you know, busted his teeth and he didn't have... <laughs> dental insurance yeah he like broke his tooth trying to open a beer bottle or something so we raised money for him to get get new teeth you know (laughs) yeah yeah that's good all right let me let me throw a couple other things uh at you about the beagle club so that album pieces of string too small to use what's the story of that title again our friend jake he was helping his mother clean out her brother's house he had passed away and he was like a hoarder, and he had a box that was labeled that. I love that. That was That's literally such a human story. It's like I I know somebody who would do. That. I might even do that later in my yeah. life. And then you know, I think what was really big with that record, and that's the first batch of songs, and before it even got to be, and there's it was always in there the politics and stuff. But like the other secret, the other trick was something that's really kind of simple, like very simple and kind of on the surface, and just sort of telling the story and just the conversational kind of thing, you know, like all my friends' names were in it and stuff like that and like named places. And Yeah, I love that about it. That You were saying of the Husky Tender, so much of it is being about in your 20s. I give like three different ages on that record. And that was like intentional because it took that long to write it. 
uh-huh. and then record it. So I would by the time we recorded, I'd change my age to where I really was, but I'd leave some of them where they were because I really wanted it to be like that stamped kind of like something that's so personal it can turn itself inside out and be universal because everybody's 23 at one point, you know? That's but I never thought things. about those kind of people. Like, I never thought about any other people hearing it or anything like that. But I thought that that would be cool. So with Pieces of String Too Small to Use, that was a literal label on a box. Literal pieces of string with no use. But then you think about that, too. It's like, that was kind of the purpose of the band. All these songs were pieces of string too small to use. What else are you going to do with them? <laughs> <laughs> I loved how you, what you were just talking about, Wove. The songs are so, so personal. You're naming names and you're talking about, you know, moments like micro moments of a friendship with someone like a night and you got this drunk or something happened. But I, you know, I'm not going to forget that. But then the next line would be something more universal and more like kind of not a moral, but something that kind of panned out. Yeah, I really love the way you did that. That's when I talk about being inspired to, to go and read lyrics that really you know, make me excited about doing art. That's, that's it, man. That's thanks, uh, brother. Thanks. You know, just to put you on the spot a little bit. One time Matt and I were having a conversation about the Johnstown kid song. He pointed, he was the first one to point out how much of it was the things that you're talking about that you like about what we do is in that song. Like you name names in it. Yeah. You're naming a specific place. Right. It's personal. It talks about politics because it talks about universal health care and that stupid flag and nationalism and ridiculous stuff, right? It talks about kind of like the corporatism, of, but it also talks about the freedom of punk rock. So it was like kind of all that stuff was in it to the point where there's like percussion, there's like shakers and, and tambourines and stuff. <laughs> trying and to so be the we Beagle always Club. wondered if it was, and you don't have to answer it if it's too much showing how the sausage is made. <laughs> But we always wondered if it was intentional or if it was sub- subconscious because obviously you were thinking about writing about those people. Entirely subconscious. Really? <laughs> That's awesome. The Johnstown kids really play it like they feel it. They sing it like they say it and they say it like they mean it. Oh, yeah. The Johnstown kids really play it like it hurts. They can't afford their health But I've written songs where it's way more deliberate. And I'm like, I've got this idea and I want to see it through. Mm. And I've got other songs that just kind of come to me fully form music and words together. That was one where I was driving. I was out West Canada sometime and I was driving through the mountains. Just the words kept coming yeah. And I had to like make something of those words. It was almost like a, I feel like what, what a hip hop person might feel like. I don't know. It's just like word after word after word. I'm, I'm like, what am I yeah, going to do with the all best. these words, man? That is yeah. the best when that happens, when it's just coming at you. If I couldn't write a song like we were talking about before, that was me and my prime, then it's probably <laughs> that those come fewer and further between. Yeah. It's funny. You got other things to think about. I think that the way to do it, is, you know, there's the, and I think it's, I don't know what you think about it, but your stuff's not very sobby or whatever either. It's pretty mopey. It has its moments. Well, there's a place for mopey, but it's not like, I don't believe in the the suffering artist. You know what I mean? I believe in it. I think it's probably very true for some, but I don't think that I write well when I'm too sad because then I'm too sad to care about it or I'm really happy. Because then it's, if you're writing to change even your own truths, then why bother changing your truths if you're happy? Right. That's an interesting idea. It's got to be right in that moment where you feel connected to who you are, you know? My connection to myself now, it's my family and it's my my work and it's my just, you know, living it, I guess. So maybe those times of tapping into that, for lack of a better word, like that kind of punk rock revolutionary spirit. I have more important things to worry about sometimes. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a good thing, right? It's probably, it that's is a healthy, good thing. right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a privileged thing, but it's definitely healthy and you got to be healthy when there's other people counting on you. Yeah, I love hearing that. So can you talk about your work a little bit? You do social work, right? Yeah, yeah I've been in social services since we met. Um, 
I've worked in group homes, residential programs for adults with developmental disabilities. I've, I ran group homes as like a program specialist and the plans and the books and stuff uh, with people. I ran a day program in Johnstown was the last job that I had there. Now I'm working as an investigator in like protective services. Talk about having your, you know, putting your money where your mouth is. I mean, singing about stuff, singing about social justice and all that, and then actually being feet on the ground doing it every day. Yeah, that's part of it too, is you don't need to, I'm definitely living that, those ideals more doing that than I ever was like playing at a bar. You know what I mean? Like jumping totally. around with my buddies, which is super fun and the best thing ever. But it's also, that's what you said. That you think what you do is activism. Yeah. You're like, yeah, you're like, you know, I get to see it up close. I mean, that's something that hits pretty close to home for me. Like my, my younger brother, two years younger than me is a special needs and he lives in a home with assisted, mm-hmm. you know, he's got guys like, I imagine what you did, actually not guys, mostly women that help him and, you know, three other guys like him mm-hmm. kind of cope day to day. Right. And, and yeah. I get to see what they're up against. I don't want to characterize it. I mean, a lot of it's super fun and it's great and it's really rewarding. And a lot of it's like really, really difficult. You know, usually if you've got four, four people living in a home like that, their needs are all very different. Right. They're often conflicting, and it's it's a challenge. And it was uh, when I worked there, and it was even more so as this like the supervisor of those houses. Yeah, because then it's serious, you know. It was more fun as that. Like when I was direct care, to just like hang out with those guys. They were great, you know. Those four guys, they're great. Like they came to our wedding. Yeah, we were tight. There, you got to be like, you can't be so condescending as to say like we're going to be best buddies, you know. But like we over years developed a real friendship so they were we were tight you know and then you don't get to hang out with them as much you're doing more for them maybe like now if one of these guys has a complaint like i can do something about it Mm -hmm. so when i went to the day program working at the day program that was super fun because it was like everybody was there i just had to leave my office and walk out on the floor and i just like mess around with everybody and get them all fired up and go back in my office so the staff would be (laughs) (laughs) now they got to deal with it yeah because now they got to deal with it but it was fun it was great you know and i loved this the the people i worked with too and it was great but then we wanted to move here we wanted to move to pittsburgh yeah i wanted to ask you about that you wrote one of the more recent beagle club tunes about the cemetery Mm -hmm. what's that called grandview cemetery yeah yeah, that is the most, well, it's the second most recent. The most recent is the one from the comments section. Yeah. Why do you say yeah. that's your favorite Beagle Beagle Club tune ever? Ah, because it came like you were talking, like a rapper, you know? It's one after the other. It just came. Everything flowed. Everything was perfect. And I thought, I felt like it was a pretty on target punch. It's something that needed punch. It made me feel good to say it. Sweet Jesus, please lead us not into the internet. Away from all the ugliness and the bitterness that breeds in it. I'm over it, I'm leaving it, I'm never coming back again. Forever and never, amen, till I'm back again. It makes me happy knowing you're out there writing songs like that and that they go get out into the world. That's It's such a positive thing, right? I mean, I love that at the same time you say, well, yeah, it's not activism because you're not self-aggrandizing in that way. But still, I mean, you could write a lot about a lot of stuff. I've I've written lots of stuff that's really inward looking and, and I wonder, you know, what's the point sometimes that at least this is, if, if only it changes one person's mind or, or gets one person to look at the world a little differently, you know, it's a big yeah. deal. I wanted to, to ask you, I ask a lot of people on this thing here about, you know, someone who's been doing it for a long time, you know, you get older and like I was saying earlier, you look back at a lot of your music was you as a younger man wondering what your life would be and and saying, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And, and here you are 15 years later or whatever, and you're still doing it and you're still as idealistic, it seems as ever. Why do you think it's important? Why is music important to you? You know, the big question, right? It's important to me because I guess I still feel like I did when I was 15 and I read that Nirvana book. It helps me make sense of me. That's important to me, I think, to be connected to the present and to who you are. That's really important to me. And it's something that I would otherwise probably spend a lot of time wallowing in nostalgia or worrying about the future. 
I think this is probably the safest place to be. <laughs> the safest. Yeah, it's funny. Which isn't good either, but. You think, why, why is it not good? Well, no, it is. I mean, I'm the present isn't the greatest place, but it's good for me. You oh, know? I, I and, see what you're and, saying. The present. Oh, yeah. I just talked about having something to focus on. Yeah. You know, I yeah. find like, I was reading, what the hell book was it? Was it some writer talking about the process of writing? Doesn't matter who it was. He says his friends when he's not writing. And so he'll, you know, phone a friend late, late at night and be like, dude, when you said that the other day when we were talking, what did you mean by that? You know, just someone who doesn't have something to focus on tends to be less happy. I'm definitely like that. Like, oh, if I, yeah. and, and, you know, his friend will go, this writer, you're not writing, are you? <laughs> you're, you're like wanting to call me in the middle of the night to pick a fight about something I said two weeks ago. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I, I think of myself like I, I'm probably that guy. Like if yeah. I'm not working on something that I'm obsessed with, I'm probably not happy. I don't know what it's like for you. Um, I comes in bursts. I'll go long periods of time without writing or even playing or doing anything. I mean, the Beagle Club is always there were and probably at the same time that we met, there was it was probably only a window of like two and a half years where we were like going at it hard and, and touring and getting after it. And then it was kind of on again, off again. It went back to how it started. Right. Like, oh, if I want to do it, I'll do it. And if my buddies want to come, they can come. Even with like writing stuff, this, some of the stuff's just me. Like the stuff, obviously, that I, the Grandview song, uh, a lot of the stuff that's, it's just me trying to figure out my studio down here in my basement. And um, so there's no and the Beagle Club, you know, but I saw right. that and I was like, yeah, I'll call it something else. And he was like, no, if you write something, you should just call it that. That's always just been what you call what you write. Right. Yeah, you got to have something to focus on and, and be part of something that's bigger than yourself. How does it work between you guys? As, as far as doing art together and stuff, is it, I mean, you guys have played in a lot of things together and he was in the Beagle Club, mm-hmm. um, but he's got a ton of other things he does on his own too. Sure. I mean, did like growing up, were you guys always playing together or how was it? Oh yeah. We learned to play at the same time and Hey, well, how'd you do that? You know, <laughs> I don't know. That must Let's have been it so great. I, I yeah. thought about that a bunch. Like, you know, the funny the- thing is he's left-handed. So it was like literally like a mirror, like you could just face each other. You guys are twins, right? We are twins. That's pretty cool. Super cool. I mean, he's the, he's the, and he's the best and he's like much better musician. We were talking about the words to these songs and that's cool. And that makes me feel good. Those songs, the music to them, I would just come in with the chords. Matt was the, he was the arranger, you know, he was like, I will break it down in this part. Or what if we do this here? Uh He was out of the 40 people that have come and gone in this band. He's the only one that ever changed a chord. That I wrote when I brought in, do you know what I mean? Right. But he was just always like into it and there. That's his like, thing. That was that's his his real gift is arranging and like taking seeing something as a, a seed of something and doing something cool with it. Anytime yeah. we, he and I had an interaction, it would always be him like going, like throwing an idea at me or, or like, hey, I've got this new project. I'm doing this thing and this is the concept. Like he'd have a concept and be like, sure. it's just gonna be like this one keyboard sound, and then we'll also have one other element. So he's thinking of it like, like he's a producer. He's got it yeah. all mapped out. Yeah. He's got that too, for sure. Yeah. It makes me happy. Yeah. He's just, the, he's more about what made that band cool than I am. That's for sure. I love when you, uh, spread around the love that way. It's, and Davis especially with too? your brother too, right? Well, he's my favorite. <laughs> but Davis too, he recorded like, them all except for St. Paul. We did that with the guy from Anti-Flag with Chris from Anti-Flag. Uh-huh. And that was fun, but it was a different experience, you know? Totally. And it was super fun. And it sounds really good. Like it was, I, I really liked that one a bunch. It might be my favorite one that we did. How was it different? It was, he, it was faster. It was, uh, we just kind of set up and went for it. I mean, we did that with We're Still at War. Obviously mm. that's recorded live. There's right. no overdubs on that. Even my singing, you know, it was all just live. So we just played that, but it took a long time to set it up, talk about how we wanted it to go and to mix it. There was some back and forth about how far to push, how live it should sound. When there's like 12, 15 people involved, is it ever a, a clusterfuck with like too many cooks in the kitchen? No, no, huh? no. It was really me and Matt and Davis and Cody as well to a, a lesser extent. And then as Emmy came into it towards the end, she would have stuff too. But like it was mainly me and Matt and Davis who would have a vision. And I think everybody else is 
they were just on board. Well, that makes it easy, especially if everyone gets it and everyone's on the same page and they're like, no, yeah, Matt's the yep. music guy or the arranger and Mike does this. And, and that's when it works really well. The, the, yeah. the best collaborations I've had is that where people do different things and just let each other do them. Yeah, that's but great. you would know on the other side of the board, right? That if you're if you're recording a band, you know this is maybe the first you've met them. They've paid to come into your studio and go for it, you know. Or in our case with Chris, like he brought us in. We had already recorded that record, started it with Davis doing it, you know, in each other's basements, the same way we did all the other ones. AF Records got the demos, and they were like, "We want to do it, but can we like come to our studio and do it?" So we're like, "That sounds cool," because we've never done that, and it was bumming me out that when we were putting St. Paul together that it felt like something we'd done before. We did the setup microphones and overdub stuff in your buddy's garage for the first one, you know? We yeah. did a studio, like rented out this weird music recital hall for half of the Husky tenor, and then the other half was done at the studio that Davis was working at. Right. And then we did We Are Still War All Live, you know? So it's like, you can't do the same thing twice. So we thought, okay, what's new? What would be something weird for us to do would be <laughs> to work with like an engineer, like a producer. <laughs> this like is radical. Have, yeah, this is radical, any right? kind of outside, like make a record like people make records. <laughs> like, yeah, let's do it. Let's try it, you know. But you would know, I'm being on the other side of the board, that like, I don't know, the bands seem weird when you're recording them. Like that there's a different dynamic. Oh, like, oh definitely. Right. Like right. people get anxious and the, yeah. they express their anxiety in different ways. But a lot of the times it's just through some kind of conflict. Right. So I just admit, that's why I asked the question the way I did. I almost kind of railroaded you as though like I'm expecting conflict. But I I don't know. The more people, the more the more uh, no. potential there I'll is. I'll tell you, right? working with working with Dose, with Chris number two there, we were on our best behavior. Well, we didn't great. do that to we but didn't that do that to happy. each other. And if it would like we wanted to get it done, you know, and there's a sense I've heard that Rick Rubin podcast, too. And he said to it or maybe it was a different one where Rick Rubin's talking about Tom Petty. He wanted like. The first couple records, I felt like, especially Wildflowers, that was the first one we did together. And he came in like, it felt like he wanted to impress me. Like he brought right. his A He was on he his was best behavior. Yeah. yeah. So like totally. we wanted to, like they were going to put our record out, you know, and whatever. And like, right. we liked Anti-Flag. And like, oh, this was cool. cool. And it was like, okay, well, we're going to like show up. And what was funny is our buddy Derek, who's the Homeless Gospel Choir, and Matt, they're a band now. Matt's in the band now. Uh -huh. But Derek was making a record with Chris. And he was like, I want you guys to come into the studio and like be on my record a little bit. Like, okay. So it was just me and Matt and Emmy that came in and um, <laughs> we just acted the fools. We just did what we would do under any circumstances. <laughs> it was fun to be on Derek's record and we're just goofing around, you know? And like, I remember Emmy being in like the booth, like trying to make it like a, like record this. And she's like playing like a beat on a, on a Bic lighter, you know? It's like, Matt's like, what does this thing do? And he's like, playing with pedals, and, you know. <laughs> but when when we went in, you know, we wanted we had our songs. We'd already recorded them once. We pounded them out. We knew what we were doing. You're we in knew shape. What we were doing That's to the great. So I remember Chris being like, I, you know, this isn't exactly how I expected you guys to be. He thought you guys would be more of a like an explosion and yeah. not be so together. Oh, that's great. I mean, there was a bit of herding cats. All the people coming in that. and out, and yeah, there's always that. But that's part of the fun. I wanted to ask you about a song that I couldn't find. And this is a song that I always kind of hold in my mind's eye, but I haven't been able to find since I, I first heard it in the mid-2000s, whenever it was. It's like a born-again person out in public flogging their beliefs, and you're marveling at their confidence. Well, there's a man at the side of the road with a cardboard sign Trying to tell us all Wish I had that kind of inspiration, that kind of drive. It's called The Pennsylvania Long Goodbye. Okay. And it's my friend Brooke Pridemore, who is a wonderful singer-songwriter from Brooklyn, New York. That's it's that's their favorite song by us. So that's what that that's what I think of when I think of that song. I love that image. It's how much Brooke likes it. And I love, I love thinking of you. I don't know whether that's a, an actual event that happened to you and you notice this person, you're like, huh, you know, way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Good effort, right? Yeah. Was it? Probably. You don't remember? I remember being picketed. We were playing a, in the Central Park in Johnstown, getting picketed by like a weirdo church group. Probably something from that. Because I think I remember saying to them, Good for you. Yeah. 
this kid came up to me one time and was like, couldn't look me in the eye, you know. I don't even remember where we were. But he like couldn't look at me, but he still came up and was like, my brother's a Marine. Like all that stuff you're saying is bullshit. I was like, dude, good for you. Like come up here and say something like that. The guts because you're at a punk show and I got 12 guys behind me. So try it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that says a lot about you as a person that you're open enough to like kind of see this guy's backstory and see him as a person and appreciate his courage, even though, you know, you're at odds ideologically. Oh. As I said, my patience for that sort of thing's been tested over the last four years, especially. But uh, I try. You got to try. You got to try. Thanks so much for doing this, Mike. This has been yeah, amazing. I've been sort of daydreaming about it for six months or so, but I got up the courage to ask you, and I'm really grateful you did. I'm so glad you did. It's I love what you're doing with it. I think it's great. So and I'm glad you asked me to do it. I'm, I'm really glad I got to talk to you again. I think about you all the time, man. So this is really good to reconnect. Endless Mike, Mike Miller, heavy business. I hope some of you get to check out some of the Beagle Club's music and see what it's all about. What a wonderful, wonderful human being. Inspiring. He's the real deal, man. You ask me what an artist is, and I say, Mike Miller, that's a fucking artist. I could go on. I think we covered it. You get how I feel. <laughs> you get the picture. Okay, so thanks to all of you who support the show on Coffee. The link to support the show is always in the episode notes. You can get it right on your phone or on your computer, however you listen, on your iPad. Just scroll down to the show notes. The link is there. So take care of yourselves. Talk to you every second Wednesday in the month, the first and the third Wednesday of every month. Thank you for your ears. Be kind, be safe, wear your mask. Thanks for giving a shit. And Sometimes Why is brought to you by Rob Szabo. Conversations are edited by Todd Donald. 